Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the new Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute continues more than a century of support for archaeology in the state. When you think about it, there's really no more appropriate spot for archaeology than at the Florida Historical Society because of not only FHS's long history in archaeology, but history and archaeology go hand in hand. The Mosquito Beaters hold their 29th annual gathering in Cocoa. We later got to define the anybody was a mosquito beater if they didn't put in to tell us how they'd done it back home when we would have the gather. <laughs> and we'll remember Volusia County historian Harold Cardwell. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Florida Historical Society is announcing the establishment of a new department focusing on the intersection of history and archaeology. March is Florida Archaeology Month, and just in time for the celebration, FHS is launching the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute, or FHSAI. Dr. Rachel Wentz is director of FHSAI and says that the Florida Historical Society was on the forefront of establishing professional archaeology in the state. Over a hundred years ago, as some of the first investigations started taking place around the state, the Florida Historical Society was really the only cultural organization established within the state. There was no professional archaeology, and therefore there were no professional archaeological associations. So the Florida Historical Society kind of took it upon themselves to see that this fascinating and most important aspect of Florida prehistory and history was salvaged before it was lost. Even a hundred years ago, we had a high rate of loss of archaeological sites, mainly through the construction of road work that stole from shell mounds, desecrating these sites. So it was a committee formed by the Florida Historical Society in the early 1900s that first established the first professional archaeologist in the state of Florida within the Florida Park Service. The Florida Historical Society was the first statewide organization dedicated to the preservation of Florida history and prehistory, and the first to preserve Native American artifacts such as stone pipes, arrowheads, and pottery. As archaeology was just beginning to emerge as a discipline in the late 1800s and early 1900s, archaeology enthusiast Clarence B. Moore became a member of the Florida Historical Society and donated his work to the Library of Florida History. Professional archaeologists in the state of Florida have kind of a love-hate relationship with C.B. Moore because C.B. Moore came and he investigated a massive number 
of archaeological sites throughout the state, most of them along the St. Johns River. He accessed these sites via a small fleet of steamboats. Of course, the most notorious was the Gopher. And while C.B. Moore tended to come and kind of destroy the mounds which he investigated, he also took meticulous notes. And those notes survive today in special collections, and they continue to be the, uh, the source of research for students, for professionals, even novice archaeologists. And so without the work of C.B. Moore, we would have lost a tremendous amount of information because, as you know, so many of the sites that once existed in the early 1900s are now gone. So he plays a pivotal role in archaeology in the state of Florida because without his works, we would have lost a tremendous amount of information and precious artifacts that were, were recovered from his excavations. From the early 20th century to the present, leading Florida archaeologists have had their work published in the FHS journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. The FHS was instrumental in the creation of the Florida Anthropological Society and most recently served as host of the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region. Their mission statement says that the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute is dedicated to educating the public about Florida archaeology through research, publication, educational outreach, and the promotion of complementary work by other organizations. FHSAI Director Rachel Wentz. When you think about it, there's really no more appropriate spot for archaeology than at the Florida Historical Society because of not only FHS's long history in archaeology, but history and archaeology go hand in hand, not only within our discipline as we approach research projects, actual excavations, but you really can't do archaeology without incorporating history into it. And we see that through the incredible emergence of historic archaeology within the state of Florida. Some of the most impactful work has been concentrated on Spanish mission sites, the contact era sites that show culture clash and the effects of culture on Native American populations. So this is one of our most fascinating and forward-moving areas of archaeological research. Dr. Rachel Wentz is author of books on Florida archaeology, including Chasing Bones and Archaeologists' Pursuit of Skeletons and Life and Death at Windover, Excavations of a 7,000-Year-Old Pond Cemetery. The first official publication of the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute is the book Searching Sand and Surf, The Origins of Archaeology in Florida, edited by Rachel Wentz. Well, I'm very excited about this, this next book because it was my first venture into editing a book, and what we decided to do working in concert with the Florida Historical Society Press was to compile the articles taken from over 100 years' worth of publications within the Florida Historical Quarterly, which, of course, is the professional journal of the Florida Historical Society. And within these publications, we really see the groundwork being laid for professional archaeology in the state. Not only does it show the evolution of the discipline within the state, but it also contains the works of the forefathers of archaeology within the state of Florida. People like John Griffin, John Goggin, Ripley Bullen, all of these people that served to set the trend in archaeology as a discipline and the important works they were doing in the early to mid-1900s. The work of more recent archaeologists, such as Gerald T. Milanich, Kathleen Deegan, and Sheila Stewart, are also included in Searching Sand and Surf, 
In addition to launching FHSAI with the new book, Rachel Wentz says that a free public lecture will be presented every Friday night in March to celebrate Florida Archaeology Month. And we are having an array of different aspects of archaeology. On March 7th, Chuck Mead, the director of the Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program, will be speaking. We're going to have an exciting forensics lecture on March 14th from Patricia Myers, who's a grad student at the University of Central Florida. Dr. Brent Weissman from the University of South Florida will be talking about historic archaeology in Florida's recent past on March 21st. And then we culminate the celebration of Archaeology Month with the release of Searching Sand and Surf on March 28th at 7 p.m. So it's going to be a wonderful book party. We'll have a lecture involved and kind of cap off the whole celebration of Archaeology Month in Florida. In addition to the FHSAI lecture series at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, Director Rachel Wentz will be traveling all over the state giving her own presentations on Florida archaeology. Well, the Florida Historical Society has such a presence throughout the state of Florida that it's only appropriate to spread archaeology throughout the state as well. And I have some wonderfully exciting uh, lectures lined up. I'll be traveling around on March 8th. I'm going to be talking about the Windover site. I'll be presenting Life and Death at Windover for the Polk State Archaeology Club. And of course, Windover, the 7,000-year-old Pond Cemetery discovered in 1982 in Titusville, on which I've conducted most of my research as both a grad student and as a post-professional. On March 15th at the Orlando Science Center, we're having a celebration of women in science. So I'll be giving a talk entitled Exploring Ancient Florida, which looks at the geological history of Florida, the transformation of our state as a peninsula, and how that set the stage for some of the earliest inhabitants to our state. And on March 20th, I'll be giving a talk entitled The Archaeology of Death, which explores mortuary rituals throughout the world. And I'll be giving that presentation at the Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse and Museum. So you can come to our website to learn more about these talks and the time and exact locations. Some of the most accomplished and well-respected professional archaeologists in Florida are serving on the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute Advisory Board. Well, we're very excited about this because we have some of the most established archaeologists within the state that will be serving on our advisory board. Dr. Gerald Milanich, who is, of course, not only a prolific archaeologist, but a prolific writer in Florida archaeology. Dr. Kathleen Deegan, who has done tremendous work up at St. Augustine. Dr. Annette Snap with the Florida Seminole Tribe will be part of our advisory board to give us a historic perspective. Dr. Roger Smith, an underwater archaeologist for the state of Florida. And, of course, Dr. James Cusick, who will give us a historic bent within our board. So we're going to be relying on these people to work closely with them and to kind of guide us through this process of establishing the FHSAI. For more information about the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute, like their Facebook page and visit the website at fhsai.org.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events, and more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Little vampires, they're looking for skin If you're out after dark, well, you ain't gonna win They suck blood and they drink like a drain Their whole life is meant to inflict pain Citronella, it don't work The only thing I know is that my neck hurts From these mosquito bites and bruises I've been slapping at night and day Every March, about 1,000 people meet in central Brevard County to attend the Mosquito Beaters' annual gathering. There are no formal talks or academic panel discussions, just a large group of friends and family coming together to remember old times and talk about the way it used to be in central Florida. George Speedy Harrell started the Mosquito Beaters in 1986. The growth in Florida has been tremendous all over the state. The coastline's more, and then you add the Space Center in this area. It was tremendous, and there were a lot of people that still lived here, but there was we had been polluted, <laughs> and I thought it would be great if we had one day that we got together, and not at a funeral or a wedding or anything that way. So I... Uh, my daughter, was Wanda Spear, was running the Kiwanis Hall out on Peachtree Street. And I got a room there, and we typed up a, a letter that we were going to have a meeting to see if such a thing would be feasible. The room was supposed to accommodate 60 people. We had 100 show up, and they wanted to get something started right away. The mosquito beaters took their name from a device made from palm fronds that is used to brush away mosquitoes. Mosquito beaters were very popular prior to World War II, before DDT was used as an insecticide. Speedy Harrell. I don't know how many liars you have talked to that tells how bad mosquitoes were, but they were worse than that. <laughs> and we uh, fought them with a palm frond, and we... The stores sold what we call smudge powder. It was a some kind of insecticide that was in, uh, and it would smolder, and it gave off a scent that the mosquitoes would leave. And then you had a a little spray gun that you could spray with a flit. What is the name of one of them? It was a a, a constant battle. It, 
I've had to beat mosquitoes off my mother, hang out the clothes, my brother milk a cow. <laughs> mosquitoes was a terrible problem prior to the DDT. They were on the shady side of the house, they would be worse than they would on the sunny side. But on the shady side, you could go to the screen wire that was over the window. There was no air conditioning, so we had to have uh, natural breeze come. But you could put your hand on the on this screen wire and hold it there just a, just a little bit and move it away, and there was a complete outline of your hand where the mosquitoes had come to to bite on you. <laughs> Prior to 1950, there were many more mosquitoes in central Brevard County than people. In 1948, the Banana River Naval Air Station was converted to Patrick Air Force Base, and in 1949, President Harry Truman established a long-range proving ground for missiles at Cape Canaveral. By 1959, NASA was launching lunar probes from Brevard County. In 1950, the population of Brevard County was only 23,000, but by 1960, the population had exploded by more than 371%. When Speedy Harrell graduated from high school in 1945, there were 33 people in his class. He says that everyone in the county knew each other and that everyone would gather in downtown Cocoa Village. Most of the work that went on was in the groves or the fishing industry. That... There was, there was other jobs, but that was the, the uh, bulk of the jobs was the grove or citrus or fishing. And prior to the Space Center, or prior to Banana River coming in during World War II or the beginning of World War II, the people would work uh, five and a half days a week Though Saturday was the half day, then in Saturday afternoon they would come to town. And that's when they got the local gossip that they would stay in town all afternoon and gather in front of the stores if it was wintertime, mostly warm, but the mosquitoes were not so bad. And the stores would have that smudge powder that I talked about burning in the stores and that uh, would keep the mosquitoes back away. <laughs> when the Mosquito Beaters first organized 29 years ago, they invited into their membership people who had lived in Brevard County prior to 1950. As Speedy Harrell explains, they have since expanded their membership to include anyone interested in local history and culture. Well, when we first started, we said before 1950 had lived here, so that kind of gave it the definition. But if we stayed with that before 1950, they'd all be dead but me, and I'd be there talking to myself. <laughs> but we later got to define that anybody was a mosquito beater if they didn't put in to tell us how they'd done it back home when we would have the gather. <laughs> Local high schools have started planning their reunions around the mosquito beater gatherings in March because they are such popular events. Speedy Harrell says the Mosquito Beater gatherings bring old friends and family members together. There has been several occasions that one person would come to it and I would see them enjoy themselves enough to pay me for what work I've done on the thing. Uh, there was one year, there was a man that lived near Atlanta, one that lived near Tampa, 
and the two had grown up here. Of course, they went in the military when they became of age and had a military tour, and then they went their way of life, and that's why they wound up one in Atlanta, one in Tampa. So the one in near Tampa had been coming to the mosquito beaters. The one in Atlanta heard about it, and he came, and he got to this group, and he said, I'm here, but I don't know anyone here. I said, yes, you know all these people. I said, that's Rufus Stewart going walking away from us there. And he said, I guess I did know him. My uh, mother married his father. <laughs> no, the other way around. But anyway, I think that was in 1999, and those two people had not seen one another since 1945. So that, that was kind of good to me. Then we had another occasion that there was uh, three boys in the family, and they were on outs with one another. They were not going to talk to him. One of them lived here in Cocoa, one lived in Orlando, and one lived in California. So the one here was coming to Mosquito Beaters. The one in California came to it a year or two, but the one in Orlando hadn't been here. So finally the one from Orlando called his brother in Orlando and said, if I can come from California to be there, surely you can come from Orlando to be there. So they got together at the Mosquito Beaters. The one from California went back California and died after that, so I, I felt good about them getting together. And there, there's just event after event that happens that way. The 29th annual Mosquito Beaters Gathering will be held Friday evening, March 14th, and Saturday, March 15th at the Walter Butler Community Center in Cocoa. For more information, call the Library of Florida History at 321-690-1971. Well, that familiar buzz can only mean one thing. Any second I'll feel the sting of those mosquito bites and bruises. I've been slapping at night and day. Oh, I've been slapping at them night and day. I've been slapping at them. Night and day. This is Florida Frontiers. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this remembrance of Volusia County historian Harold Cardwell. Harold was our go-to guy. If you ever had a question about a date or a name or a place or anything like that that was a question in your mind, it was always very, very easy to pick up the phone and just give Harold a call. And um, he, he usually had the answer right off the top of his head. That was Suzanne Hetty, executive director of the Ormond Beach Historical Society. She spoke to me about Harold Cardwell, a local historian who made a tremendous impact researching, writing, and preserving the history of Volusia County. Harold passed away in April of 2012 at the age of 85. He left us a voluminous body of work on the history of the community he called home. I served with Harold on the board of the Florida Historical Society, as did Dr. Leonard Lempel, 
a professor at Daytona State College. I asked Dr. Lempel to tell me a little bit more about Harold's work. His uh, knowledge was, was widespread. It was very broad. In, in looking over the body of what he wrote, it's remarkable to me the range of subject matter uh, that he wrote about, just about every aspect of Daytona Beach, Port Orange, South Daytona, the local communities around here, Ormond Beach. He just, uh, his knowledge just encompassed such a broad cross-section. He was a a landscape architect, so, you know, a lot of what he wrote about was the local architecture around here. A couple of his articles, uh, food sources uh, of pioneer settlers, uh, you know what what the s- local settlers ate and what they harvested the local roots and herbs and animals that they uh, used in in pioneer days. Uh, he wrote about artesian wells. He wrote an awful lot about World War Two. Uh, there are numerous articles. There was a whole issue of the Halifax Herald, which is the uh, magazine that uh, he was editor of for years. And some some years. Uh, he was he would write all the articles for the uh, for the magazine. Having the research and publication record as Harold did would be remarkable in itself. However, Harold also was stricken with blindness later in his life when he was the most productive as a historian. Dr. Lempel explains. He was not born blind, so he could see for a large portion of his life, uh, but I, I think he had a, a photographic memory where he was able to just uh, remember all, all of these details and, and, and just to, remarka- to a remarkable degree. Uh, so it was after his retirement, I believe in 1999, he, uh, with, with his wife Priscilla, uh, started to put on paper a, a lot of, of what he, uh, he knew, and that's when he, he published most of his books. But even, even back in the, in the 1990s, when he was blind, still working, he was writing a lot of articles. And I guess, you know, his, his attention to detail, that photographic memory, is reflected in his, his writings because, and his storytelling, he just, his, his articles and books are full of, of good stories and full of historical detail. Both Ms. Hetty and Dr. Lempel told me stories about the encyclopedic knowledge of places, locations, and landscapes Harold had committed to memory. Here, Dr. Lempel recalls a field trip with Harold attended by Dr. Lempel and his students. For several years, was the uh, faculty advisor of the History Club. In fact, I kind of got the group together of students who were interested in history. And we would take various field trips. And uh, uh, Harold offered to take uh, the group on a tour of historic New Smyrna Beach. And so I took the group. Harold was like the guide. And it was incredible because Harold was completely blind. He couldn't see anything. Yet he was able to go around New Smyrna Beach uh, pointing out various buildings, landscape, uh, and, and tell history about what was happening in those homes and those buildings. And, and here he couldn't see anything. But he was able to visualize all this in his head and explain it pointed out in detail to the students and to, and to me, and I just found that absolutely incredible. Much of Harold's work is located at the Halifax Historical Museum in Daytona Beach, most notably in the back issues of their newsletter, 
the Halifax Herald. That was Suzanne Hetty and Dr. Leonard Lempel. And I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. And until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.